Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. We are spending four weeks considering the role we play as servants of God. We are called to serve one another in the body of Christ. And in your bulletin, you have this insert once again that will help you know how to put into practice the principles that we've been learning from the scriptures. And you have the top 10 needs that the staff has picked in their ministries, or there are ministry areas that you believe you are gifted in which to serve. Uh, on the 20th of November, on Sunday at 12.15, we'll have a luncheon here for those of you who just want help in the process called, called Lunch and Learn. What's it mean to be gifted? What's it mean? How can you apply your gifts? Uh, you can go online to our website and take a uh, spiritual uh, gifts assessment to know who you are, maybe understand your giftedness a little better. Every one of us is gifted, and God has put us in the body of Christ that we may be the body as we're supposed to. If you, if you don't have a clue, just sign up this. Put, take this card, put it in the basket, it's passed, and Kevin uh, Carr and his ministry team will follow up with you. We want to do our best to help you get connected in service because, and the bottom line, it's not about uh, filling our slots. God will not bless that effort. What he blesses is people who spend time in the word and emerge knowing this is the person God wants me to be. And to be a healthy a mature believer, Christ follower, you have to be involved in serving the body of Christ. That's not my teaching. That's what our church believes. That's what the Bible teaches through and through. And so we want to do better at all that. So, so please, uh, if you just don't know, just sign your name and let us help you in the process. Don't go online and you'll find the same information there. One, one uh, particular uh, a uh, man was in the BMV uh, getting his license renewed. This was told about in, uh, in a F uh, Fortune magazine. A man was writing about a friend of his who was there at the BMV, and he was waiting. For an hour and a half, he was so frustrated. He was his big shot uh, leader of his company, and he mumbled to his wife, don't they know who I am? And she says, yeah, you're a plumber's son who happened to get lucky. Now, you know, you could say that about your life, maybe, but you know, we're here not because we got lucky, because, but because we met Jesus Christ. And when by his providence, you get to meet Jesus, it changes everything. The way you see the world, the way you see people, the desire to serve and to give and to love. Let's face it, all of us, deeply inside I think we do want to be great. We want to be, we want to, at our funeral, we want people to say, that was a great guy. And she was one great woman. Don't we want that? But it doesn't happen according to the world's definition of greatness. It won't happen that way. It has to be achieved by the way Jesus describes what greatness is all about. You know, uh, when, when there's a race, if you're a runner, one person crosses the finish line first to have that position of being first. So a number of, for, for all the years of its uh, being televised, the Academy Awards said, and the winner is. And several years ago, you remember, they changed that line to, and the Oscar goes to, pretending there aren't losers. But there are losers in, that cat in every category, and one winner. That's true. This week, both the Cubs and the Indians did not get highly recognized equally. The Cubs got the attention, right? Because there's one winner. Now, when it comes to the kingdom of God, if you want to be first, you can be. Anybody can be. If you want to be great, you can be. 
but it's got to be God's way. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And this particular trip, he knows how it's going to end. He's going to be crucified. He knows that's before him. And it must have been a grueling trip to be taking and how sad he had to be sidetracked by an encounter like this, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. There are three words that stand out in this text to me. If you're one to take notes in your Bible, circle these three words. The first one would be the word cup. It's in verse 22 or 21. Nope, nope, 22. And then the word ransom at the last verse, 28. And then the word slave in verse 27. Those three words teach us about what this means to be a servant. First of all, our service may include a cup. Jesus said here in the text, can you drink this cup? So as they're traveling toward Jerusalem, uh, there's this mother. Some scholars say she's Salome that we read a lot about or is mentioned in passing in the Gospels at several places. She's believed to be the mother of James and John, the boys she's seeking some place position for. It's a strange request this mom has. I want you to have, I I want you to give my sons chief places in in your kingdom when you establish. Do you have a controlling mom? Are you one? Go to Wikipedia and you read this about Jewish mothers. The stereotype of Jewish mothers generally involves a nagging, overprotective, manipulative, controlling, smothering, overbearing mother or wife, who, one who persists in interfering in her children's lives long after they have become adults. And you didn't know your, your mother was Jewish, did you? <laughs> our, our parents mean well. We mean well to our kids when we get involved and we give advice and, and sometimes we, we're, we can be smothering and they have to confront us sometimes. Maybe you've had to do that in your family. This particular mother was confused, as were the other disciples, including her sons, about the nature of the kingdom of God. They were still confused, this close to the cross. They were still anticipating a physical kingdom to be set up. That's why in just a little bit, Judas is going to go aside and he's going to sell Jesus out. Why? Because nothing happening. There's no palace, no troops, there's no army being gathered. What's in it for him? 
And so he decides he might as well betray his master to get something out of it. And so betrays him, of course, for 30 pieces of silver. Even after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends to heaven, they're still confused. Because in Acts 1, Jesus says, you guys stay here and wait for the promise of my Father, referring to the Holy Spirit. And they ask him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the nation to Israel? Is Israel going to get back on its feet? They're still thinking politically. And so no wonder this mother is thinking that way as well. It's a hard concept for us to even keep remembering about being citizens of heaven more than citizens of the United States or of of Indiana or our particular place, wherever it is that we live. We get confused. And, and, And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they casually said, oh, sure, no problem. Because they didn't understand the cup he was talking about. Now, in just a little bit, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Matthew records for us these words. Going a little farther, farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, not as I will, but as you will. And Dr. Luke records that Jesus was so intense in his prayer that he was sweating drops like blood. Why? He was about to face the cross. And it was so deeply intense, it was... It was all this emotional pain. He knew he was going to be left utterly alone by his friends, the disciples. They're going to be scared for their lives. They're going to be behind locked doors. God, his father, is going to turn his back when his son is crucified, causing his son to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly alone. The physical pain was excruciating. The spiritual pain of bearing your sins and mine upon him on the cross was, was, was almost more than he could bear. He was utterly alone. And so when he asked You know, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Sure. They didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue what Jesus knew about them drinking the cup of suffering in their service to the Lord. In Acts 12, James took a big gulp from the cup of suffering. King Agrippa had arrested him. King Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the one that sought the life of the baby Jesus when he was born, causing Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt. And so he had James beheaded because of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ in his preaching. So as it was a big gulp, for John, it was rather a slow slow sip through the years. John was the last of the apostles to die, Tradition tells us that under the Roman emperor Domitian, uh, it was attempted to to boil John in hot oil, but it wasn't successful. It was later that John, we know, was exiled to the island of Patmos where he was given the revelation that we read and study. Later, he was released. He went back to Ephesus where he died a man of old age, but he paid a price throughout his years under persecution for preaching the gospel. There's always sacrifice that's involved in serving the Lord. 1 Peter 4 says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Michelangelo was asked one time how, how he could sculpt a masterpiece like David. And he said, I just chipped away from the block everything that wasn't David. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us when we welcome him. He slowly chips away at all the things that are not like the image of Jesus Christ. 
And we are being formed and shaped into who Jesus is. And friends, that involves often such sacrifice. If your service to the Lord is easy, it's not enough. If you measure your service carefully so it won't cost you too much by your involvement with people or the service that is called for you to render, it's not, how dare any of us understand, you know, the cross of Christ and come away from that thinking how little we can eke out of our busy schedules so that we can check off the box marked service. The second word we have is this word ransom. In the last verse, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. There are two students, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They were students at Stanford University a number of years ago. And uh, if you're a computer geek, you may know their names. They were in their dorm room, and they came up with this mission statement. It said, to organize the world's information into a, uh, and make it universally accessible and useful. That was their mission statement they formed together, and out of that, they developed Google. How different our lives would be if they had never written that particular mission statement. Nike's mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. The company you work for probably has a mission statement. Our church's mission statement is to love all people to new life in Christ. Now, it doesn't tell us what to do and how to do it. It doesn't tell us methodology, but it keeps us aware of the big picture. What are we doing here? Loving all people to new life in Jesus Christ. This verse 28 is Jesus' mission statement. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a, as a ransom for many. It's what, it's what kept him focused, that he came to pay a ransom because we had been kidnapped by our own foolishness and by rebellion against God, and a price needed to be paid for our souls to get back right with God. Now, when I, you know, I've been doing weddings for 40 years, and uh, through those years, most of the couples I've married, I've provided premarital counseling. I don't do that as much anymore because I've learned that couples need more, and so we have mentors in our church, have healthy marriages, and they spend 12 hours with a couple walking with them before their marriage. And uh, the workbooks that we use are called Before You Say I Do. Some of you got married here. How many got married here and used that book? Oh, more than I thought. Uh, and you remember there's a chart. You remember the chart, Susie, on the love chart? Yeah. How you doing with that, Susie, by the way? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the love, do you remember the love chart had three words, eros, which is sexual or romantic love, and then philea, which is brotherly love, and there is agape, which is the sacrificial love. And all through the years, I've only known one couple that answered the third couple. Now, the eros love, oh, they get that one. They can write examples on that one, eros. And when it comes to philea, brotherly, oh, they got that one. But it comes with agape. I've known one couple through the years that got that right, and it was none of you that just raised your hands. <laughs> because it's so hard to get our hands around agape. And, and the previous page explains what agape is. Agape love, and I will talk more about love next week, but agape is, this, is a sacrificial love. There's always a price to agape love. If it doesn't cost you anything, 
then it's not really sacrificial love. It's not agape love. That's why even forgiveness is, forgiveness itself is agape love because what are you doing when you forgive somebody? You're setting yourself up to be wounded again. There's a price to it. And so Jesus, of course, fully modeled that on, on the cross of Jesus Christ. You veterans, you are serving now. You put your name on the line and you trust you'll never have to go anywhere where you're going to have to pay with your life. You pray about that. You hope not. Many have. Now, when Jesus Christ signed his name, obeying his Father in heaven and becoming flesh here, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was coming here to lay down his life. There was no hoping that he wouldn't have to. He knew what was coming. Even though in the garden he said, at the last hour, God, is there any other way to accomplish salvation? Please let it be done. But at the end of the day, I want to do what you want me to do. And so he went on to the cross. That's the, that was the ransom that he paid. And so because of that, we come together as his people because this ransom had to be paid. It even speaks of this in the Old Testament. In chapter 49, of, or Psalm 49, it says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. And that's true for your sin and mine. There, there's no price that we can ever pay. See, our service to God is not a payment for what Jesus done for us. You can't serve him well enough to go to heaven. I can't either. It's only by the blood of Christ. Verse 15 gives us hope. It says, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. So Jesus Christ came. He died. He paid the ransom. Who did he pay the ransom to? Not Satan. He paid the ransom to God because he's the one that we were on the outs with because of our sin. He's the one that we've greatly offended by our sin and our disobedience. And so the ransom was paid to him so that we could be welcomed into his presence. How dare we serve him lightly? How dare we say we're too tired? How, say, how dare we say our calendars are too full? I don't have time. It's sad. I'm saying all this not to check off boxes that, that positions are filled in our church of volunteers. But I, I want you to know my heart about it. It's not about that. It's that we can never become mature children of God, followers of Christ, without being servants in the body of Christ. We can't be. It's woven all throughout the New Testament scriptures. And so, Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we're free. Not free to do whatever we want to do, but free to do what God has designed us to do. That's why we need to know our gifts and how it contributes to the body of Christ. This third word is bond slaves. Our service we offer, we offer as bond slaves. The text says here, Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. We make jokes sometimes about Jesus' other comment, if you want to be, uh, uh, if you want to be first, you be, have to become last. The last will be first and the first will be last. Now, when we see this word slave here, we think of the antebellum period. We think of the harshness of the slavery period in our own country. But the word that Jesus uses here is, is not the typical word for slave. The word is doulos. Doulos, the, the word means bondservant. And Jesus throughout his ministry taught us by the way he lived and operated what a bondservant really looks like. So, uh, Christian, come on up. And uh, just sit here. Three times we have recorded, take off your shoes and socks, please. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, three times in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples argued about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. One time, it was on the way, or not far removed from the scene in John 13, when John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And so they were having their last meal together before the cross. Judas is, has been prompted by the evil one to betray Jesus. He's going to follow through. So they go into the upper room here. It's a borrowed room. Now, if you were hosting, um, you would have often have somebody you're honoring, or maybe you yourself would be the honored guest, and you would seat guests accordingly to their closeness to you. Imagine the disciples vying for certain positions around the table. And if you lived in that day, and you were hosting a meal, and you were a wealthy family, you may have a slave that was the one who would wash the feet of your guests because, you know, they... The roads were dusty. They wore sandals. You were going to be reclining at the table with your feet out, and how feet aren't very attractive anyway. And they were on their dirty, ah, not very appetizing. And so the guest, if they weren't wealthy, they might provide you with a basin of water to wash your own feet before the meal. But on this particular night, they were already in the process of eating the meal. There had been nobody there to see that the feet were washed. And the Bible tells us in John 13 that Jesus took off his outer garment and that he, there was a towel there. Somebody must have put it there, and he put it around his waist. The tunic that he had on, would, or the, the undergarment, would have been like a tunic, a long T-shirt that hung low. It would be the typical garment of a slave of that day. And then the Bible says that he took water, a pitcher of water, and he poured it in a basin. It wouldn't look like this one. It had been a clay basin of some sort. And the Bible says that he started at the table and he began to wash feet of his disciples. Can you imagine the hush that was in the room? This was absolutely not done. You don't, you just don't, you don't do this. He got to Peter. Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. I'm not going to put up with this. Imagine he was thinking, how dare these other guys let you wash their feet? And Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't really have a part of me. And what he was saying is, Peter, you will never be, you'll never be a good servant of mine until you know the humility that comes from being served. And we Americans take such pride in our independence, we can make our way. We can do our thing by ourselves. We don't need anybody. And nothing is more contrary to the spirit of the body of Christ, what God calls us to, than that spirit. And until we're willing to be served, we're not going to be served. We're not going to be good servants. Now, Jesus, you just can imagine the hush. Gail, would you come up, please? And take your shoes off. Oh, you have boots on, don't you? That's tricky. Can you get them off easily? Okay. Christian, you want to get up? I want you to wash Gail's feet. In Jesus' day, a husband 
would never wash the feet of his wife. A a, a parent would never wash the feet of a child. That was unheard of. A master would never wash the feet of the guests in his home or master his disciples. In fact, in Jesus' day, if you were a disciple of a master, uh, you, you, you would go to the master and say, can I be your disciple? Will you mentor me? When Jesus came, he handpicked the ones he wanted to follow him and be close to him. Everything about Jesus was so completely different. Christian is washing his wife's feet now because Jesus said in the text, now what I've done for you, I've done as an example that you should do the same thing for other people in your life. Thank you all. You see, a bondservant is an unusual position. It's different than a normal servant. Exodus 21 tells us that you might be a slave to a certain master. And then you pay your obligation off. You pay what you have to pay to get your land back or to pay your debts or whatever it is. If it's not accomplished by the seventh year, you can go free. But maybe your master has been so good to you, you don't want to stop serving him. And so you choose to be his ongoing slave, even though you don't have to be. And then you become a bond servant, a bond slave. And the master would take you, not near the doorpost where the wood is, and he'd take an awl, and he'd hammer a hole in your earlobe to the wood and put an earring there, piercing your ear, to show that you, by your own will, have chosen to be a servant of this master and are pleased to do so. That's what a bondservant is, friends. That's why we serve the Lord, because our master has been so good to us. How can we dare not give him everything that he deserves? Now, friends, this is not going to happen easily. It starts in your home. It starts by us We who are husbands serving our wives in humility and love and kindness, sensitivity. It starts with wives serving their husbands and supporting them in their role as leading the family. It happens when we serve our children in the right way, not to make them the center, but to serve them humbly and teaching our children of serving in the family and honoring one another. And then that transfers to the body of Christ we're here, we come together with, we're so, such consumers. We go to church waiting to be served and everything to be done my way. I want to be happy in the church I go to. And we have all these checkoff lists about what this church is going to do for me, completely contrary to the body of Christ. We need to walk in here and ready to give to one another. And see, we'll never be good servants in the world until we are first servants toward one another. This political season, for instance, have you sounded in conversation just like the world? Do you bellyache just like everybody else? What an opportunity for people of faith to say, I'm so thankful that my life is in God's hands and I can pray for our country and, and I know I can rest in him. What a great opportunity. Have we missed it by sounding just like the rest of the world? Our service is, is about how we speak, how we act, how we hold ourselves, how we listen to people, how we love on people, people so much who are unlike us. I want you to know I don't have a hotline to God. Lots of people think I have a red phone in my office. You know? I don't. I work on my life just like you do. 
I make errors in my marriage like you do. I have to ask Diana's forgiveness at times just like you have to ask your wife for forgiveness. And she has to forgive me. And, and, and I have to become a better grandfather, a better father, a better Christian, a better man. I have to work on my faith just like you. I have to work on an attitude of service. I have to, I have to guard my pride. I, we're all in this together, friends. We're all in this. That's why we need each other so desperately. And how dare we eke out just a little bit of service and think that God is happy with that. He's called us to lay down our lives. Because at the end of the day, when we stand before him, he's not going to say, Hey, well done, good and faithful preacher. Well done, good and faithful musicians. He'll say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Oh, Father, remind us again of the scene of the cross and the degree to which you went that we might be free today and we might know the joy of being united with our Father in heaven and be at peace with our Creator to know that there's one who pleads for us every day, that we have the Holy Spirit within us who's always chiseling away, that we might more resemble Jesus better each day we live. Forgive us, Father, when we have more let the world infect us than us affect the world. I pray, Father, we'll be done with lesser things, that we'll be done with, with consumer mentality, the ease of church life without really giving ourselves to one another for the sake of the kingdom. So I pray the washing of feet, Father, will go on in deeper ways, ways that aren't necessarily seen by water and a bowl, but by the way we humbly give ourselves just in mere thanksgiving, sheer thanksgiving for the goodness and grace of God toward us. You are worthy, and we thank you in Jesus. Amen.